It's our community focus, and uh, we focus out Gwakangela uh, Mankengana, joined on the line now by SABC reporter Balentlem Tetwa. Mbali, good evening and welcome. Thank you for having me, Ayabong. Are you well? I'm well, I'm well. Yeah, I'm well. yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw. <laughs> I'm so confused, though, Mbali. Maybe you can help me here. Okay. Uh, I saw there was a press site four ways. I've just seen some visuals of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a lion that seemingly has been hunted down by. Uh, the Isilo elect, if I can say that. Uh, yes. But let's maybe start off in four ways and we'll come back to uh, the lion that now is, um, I guess, uh, being held by Amabuto, ostensibly killed by Isilo elect. And uh, yeah, wh- what happened in four ways? Okay, so three brothers, the king, mm. a king. Now we understand that um, last weekend, the four, firstborn son to the late king, Zintinga Big Zulu, um, carried out his own ceremony where he entered the crowd. And there were just a few members of the royal family who were there to support this. Now, the, the brothers are saying that they were not aware of this um, ceremony having taken place. They only heard via the grapevine, and uh, this was before, and they couldn't stop it even, you know, they couldn't stop it. Um, and they have now... Um, during the briefing, distanced themselves, saying that they are not a part of um, the ceremony that we're going to see, some of the ceremony that we're going to see taking place on Saturday. They are then describing this as a very concerning and worrying trend where it seems as though the king's children are deciding all on their own accord to go inside the, the kraal and doing this without the guidance of them, or without their guidance as the eldest brothers or the brothers mm. remaining, um, you know, or the remaining fathers. Um, I think, I, I, I hope you understand what I mean. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so, so then, Balaj, I mean, I guess after that happens, we then see in the, next, in the last hour or so, uh, a lot of fanfare out, and as I said, Isilo elect, Mrs. Zulura Gazweltini. Ostensibly, uh, we saw that land cruiser coming back with a lion. I'm not sure if that lion's alive or dead. I, I wouldn't think it's alive just by how it was being carried. Uh, so, ostensibly, I've, I've, what's the story there? I've seen that. I've seen that. But before we go there, I think mm. what's important that's come out of the briefing that we really need to um, discuss is a question that was posed to the brothers, right? And now South Africans um, know of the ceremony or, or custom where the Zulu kingdom comes together and they put money together to help the king uh, to Lobola, uh, a princess of his choosing, right? And many years ago, the princess of the king's choosing was Umamdu'unu, uh, Queen Mandombi Shamini. Mm. Right mm. now, we have come to understand that there was an arrangement and an agreement that in the in in the Zulu Kingdom coming together to lobola on on the king's behalf, it was so that um Queen Mandombi would then bear yes. the the heir to the throne. Right now, this question is then posed to the brothers, and and they asked, you know. Why is it that, you know, it seems as though this custom is, is being forgotten and it's being, you know, set aside, seemingly? The response from the, the, the brothers 
is is that if the king had married um, Prince Charles's child, would you be fighting for Prince or Khalid's child to descend to the throne or to ascend to the throne? Right. And I'm going to then. Um, wait, say sp- wait, in, Bali, wait, wait, wait. Say that again. I'm trying to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bang a zool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bang a zool. Yeah. Because we had to translate it, like, right, for the benefit of our listeners. Mm. But say we're trying to zool. Ute, ugube, i isilo, sastate, umtwana, ka Prince Charles. Benizo luela ikaladi yin. Ha ha ha. Now that leaves a lot of questions. So what a are they saying? What, what are they saying about Isilo Isilo elect uh, uh, Misuzul? They, they don't stop there. Then the response then continues, and it's unclear. You know, obviously speaking in code, a code that mm. you obviously need to decode and get experts Yo, to decipher, to decode <laughs> and decipher. Yes. You know what is being said here, where another prince comes along and says that. Gotazana, referring to me, if you were to have a child, you your child would not then take your ancestors and and, and so on. So um, it, it's unclear, Mm-mm. but what, the question that comes to mind here is if they are questioning um, King Mrs. Zulu's, um, if, if King Mrs. Zulu qualifies for the Amazulu royal throne, um, whose mother hails from Eswazini, right? It seems that, that, that that's the message you, you sort of are getting from those statements, which do form part of a story that I am putting together for television, um, mm. which will be just due to on air. But this is uh, this is this up sound is included, and the uh, clip sound clip is included in the story. And obviously, this is just so that for the benefit of the viewers. And for the benefit of South Africans to make up their own minds and for experts to then try and decipher what exactly is is, is intended in, in, in that whole statement, you know. Who, who is Buza, Buza Besazi Gazueltini's mother? So the other issue here, we, which we couldn't really speak to, right, which we couldn't really ask uh, about, rather, is um, in a conversation that I had with someone who's been following the story quite closely, Ayandam Song, I'm sure you know her, our colleague, mm, yes, uh, yes. who's based in Durban. And she then explains that um, the king has taken six wives, and of the six wives, only three of the wives can um, then give birth to an heir, right? Mm. So we were just talking before the briefing took place, and uh, she was just saying that it would be interesting who they announced, given the fact that, you know, only three of the queens um, are, are, can, um, get in on, um, only an heir can come from only three of the wives, right? And it seems as though the, the, the three brothers disagree with this analogy and this notion. They are saying that all six wives are equal and um, an heir can come from any of the six wives. They have chosen this uh, individual on the basis that he's worked well with the king and that they believe that he will be able to uh, take better care of the Zulu kingdom, you know. Sure. Um, and, and they are saying that, you know, because they know each and every child that comes from the royal household uh, intimately, they, can, they are in the best position to then choose and decide 
who should uh, take the throne. They were then asked if they, they stand to, to benefit in the form of land as well as, and I mean, many questions are coming up as to why these brothers um, seem to feel or believe that they are the ones to, 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 to nominate you know, um, a, a, a king, you know, and why they are so interested in, in the whole process. Um, do they stand to gain anything? Well, obviously they have dismissed that and um, they, they did talk about the Ingonyama Trust and, and so on, but we, we didn't quite get a clear answer. So these are the things that have come out of that briefing. Now, going back to the lion, I've <laughs> only seen what you have seen. So I can't really say much, but what you are seeing unfolding on social media is that you will remember that when um, the prince Smagate uh, went into the kraal um, last week, it's unclear if there were any ceremonies that preceded him entering into the kraal, right? Now, the brothers who call this media briefing are saying that they need, they, they should be there. And before these children, uh, the, 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 the king's children, and I'm using their language here and their words here, um, enter into the crowd, they have to have an elder uh, representing the, the, the royal family and to carry a spear before they can enter the, mm-hmm. the, the crowd. So now that then gives us a sense of the fact that there are obviously ceremonies and there are certain customs that are then observed prior to the entering, and, and, and there are all these fine details that go into entering the crowd. And one of those is the lion that we have just seen uh, we, on, on social media that we cannot really say much about because we, we, we were not there to confirm Balay. with our own eyes or anything like that. But it, it seems as though it's part of those uh, processes. I know you're about to stop Balay. me. Okay, no, I'm just, done. Just, just, as, just as we wrap up, it's all about um, <laughs> Let's leave it. I see Thank you. Thank you so much. the SABC reporter joining us. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bell, the SPCA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Yeah, maybe you might tell us uh, the people who live not too far from there from Shishui. Uh, uh Yeah, maybe, maybe Tolagale uh, But hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did my head the dog really? Did he really hunt that one down? 22 minutes it is after, uh, yeah, after 8 p.m. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll read read back a tweet now, but I guess my question still stands, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, this, uh, of uh, you know <laughs> whether or not, indeed, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, buy it a dog, yeah. Um, Fumbata on Twitter, Pojinja uh, saying, uh, yeah, here's your answer, and there's a tweet there coming through from Jagannath's fave saying, somewhere after it escaped during the floods, and just uh, by way of translation. Uh, the lion had been kept in a um, what's a walk again? In a uh, enclosure uh, for pigs somewhere after it had escaped, maybe from Kluwi after the floods. So I guess that's the story there. But uh, yeah, a hey, pomp and ceremony of some of these places really needs a lot of um, yeah, a lot of um, 
wildlife. Uh, Zbele Pata on Twitter saying, yeah, yeah, dear. And he uh, tags there the uh, South African National Biodiversity Institute. And they're saying, yeah, it's not far-fetched. The royals in the Eastern Cape go for dolphin hunting. Ay, 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 ay. Um, I think I was today as old when I found out about that. But yeah, if you can corroborate what Zibela is saying there, that indeed in some parts of uh, the eastern parts of our country, uh, there are royals who go for dolphin hunting. I would certainly find that rather interesting. But uh, yeah, your thoughts on this? Uh, it's fascinating. I think uh, we're probably going to need... Uh, you know, a uh, SABC documentary. I was going to mention something else, but maybe this is a kind of, you know, when SABC has its own on-demand streaming platform and I have it on good authority, that is Sondel. Uh, when we have that on uh, SABC Max or whatever, I think the first story will certainly have to be uh, this one from Gwakangela Mangenga. And uh, who knows, uh, maybe the person who might write uh, uh, the script or might be the screenwriter for it, might be uh, my next guest, uh, Professor Zakes Mda, uh, who uh, joins us uh, on this Thursday as our thought leader. And uh, yeah, he's with us already on the line and he's going to join us after this. 25 minutes it is after 8 p.m. Our thought leader on this Thursday is uh, Professor Zakes Mda. He is a writer, a playwright, a fine artist, uh, a filmmaker, uh, Renaissance man extraordinaire and Dibalandonina, and he joins us tonight on the line. Uh, Professor Amta, Maskwam Kelabak Metro FM talk. Thank you so much for, for joining us. You know, you know, when my producer said we're going to speak to you, I, I, I didn't know exactly what we're going to talk about because your canon is so large. Uh, so, uh, so we'll try and cover it. I think we do have a bit of time, so I think we can, we can try and cover it. I want us maybe just as we start, uh, 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 Professor Amda, to, to maybe talk about uh, yourself. Zanem Vulaki Zitom Da. Uh, yes. Your early life and, of course, your many early influences that um, contributed to the multiple spaces within which you operate. And then we'll come to uh, some of your own work as well. And more importantly, some of your work as we speak this week, uh, your artworks on the man in a green blanket. But Ngubanu uh, Da, and where did it all start for you? Mm. But um, I grew up in Soweto at first in Dobsonville. No, sorry, first in Orlando East, mm. and then later in Dolphinville. So what would happen then is, during the December holidays, we would go back you know, to my grandmother's uh, place mm. in the Eastern Cape. Uh, I was very young then, I think, actually maybe you know, six or seven years old, and then in the Eastern Cape, I would fall under the influence of the oral tradition mm. because that's where, of course, as grandchildren who come from all over South Africa, from Cape Town, from Johannesburg, and so on, visiting our grandmother and our grandfather, mm. who would sit around the fire when our grandmother was cooking, and of course, tell stories. And that's where the storytelling bug caught me. Mm, mm. But besides that, in the, uh, during the day, because you see, my, my grandfather owned almost a mountain. You know, it was called Yahom Mountain. 
And that's where he had his orchards. He grew various fruit there. Mm. But also on this mountain called Jahom, there were many caves, the caves of Abachwa people, mm. whom I've heard that you call them San uh, these days, S-A-N. And who would be playing in these caves, and there would be all these wonderful paintings of the Abatwa, the ancient uh, 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 Abatwa people. We would then start using chalk that we stole from school, doing our own drawings on the walls of the cave, mm. but sometimes tracing the very drawings of you know, paintings of Abatwa. Wow or trying to compete amongst ourselves, you know, as kids there, mm. you know, uh, who, who, who would do the best abattoir kind of, 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 of drawings with this chalk. Mm. Little did we know that what we were doing, in fact, is vandalism. We were defacing the ancient paintings, the heritage that was left for us by these ancient people. But also, at the same time, that very act of, of uh, vandalism that we're doing, we were also learning how to draw. So that tells you that my earliest teachers mm. then were the ancient Abatwa people in as far as uh, yeah. painting and drawing is concerned. So it was in, in the Eastern Cave then, near the Lesotho border at Koboshane, mm. where the bug of storytelling caught me from the oral tradition, and the bug of painting caught me from the ancient works of the Abatwa people, of the Sang mm. people, mm. who were called the, the, the Bushmen by the yeah. colonists. Prof, just, just on that, I mean, it, it, it seems so interesting to me when you recount that story. Because in a sense, when one reads your work, I mean, as you were speaking, the one that came to mind was your book, in, in your book, Little Sons. Uh, you yeah. speak there about the death of, uh, I don't know, was it a magistrate, Hope, uh, or something yeah. like that. Um, these oral traditions that you would interact with and even the visual storytelling of, um, you know, Abatwa in, in that part of the world seems yeah. to be something that uh, certainly finds a lot of expression. It might even be in the heart of redness, the story of Nongaose. But, but I'm also quite interested, I guess, in how those early influences have continued to be a thread in a lot of the work that you've done subsequently. Oh, yes. I'm glad that you, you noticed that. Why? Because I never noticed it myself. <laughs> I didn't realize that there are these recurring themes mm. that would feature those ancient people uh, from time to time in some of my novels. Mm. including sculptures of Mapungubwe, the heart of restness, as we have pointed mm. out already, and Little Sun. Oh, yes, definitely. It was only when people like you who have read the works pointed that out. Then I realized that those early influences continue to be my current influences. So... These themes, you know that, I mean, when you tell a story, you're, you're writing a novel. Mm. For instance, as you say, uh, the, the, the story of Ronaldse, which comes from history, or Little Sons, which also 
you know, from history. At no point did I ever say to myself, now I'm going to feature or I'm writing a novel about our tour. Mm. They organically featured when I spoke about that environment and in its real life, that environment had our tour. It also had Amakaya, mm. who were called the Hottentots by the by the colonialists, but they call themselves the Koi Koi people. Since I was writing of an environment that in its reality featured these people, they had to feature in my story as well. Mm. Mm. It happened without me thinking that or looking back to say that, hey, as a little kid, my drawing and my storytelling was influenced by these ancient people. Professor Amdab, and then, I mean, I guess, you know, you grow up in Soweto at some stage and, uh, you know, uh, due, I guess, in large part to the political activities of your father, uh, uh, Mr. Ashby Pitamta, you end up in Lesotho. And it seems politics, to varying degrees, also becomes a common thread, uh, not just in your work, but in your life. Um, I mean, just talk to us about that. Um, from your early days growing up, I mean, your, your father certainly was very much at the center of the sort of firmament of the political imagination of the 40s, the 50s in South yeah. Africa. Um, and, and of course, very much, you know, your own life follows the path and the trajectory of South African politics right up until your return in the 90s to South Africa. Right. Yes, indeed. See, mm. Youth League mm. from Lembede. Mm. So, but then we heard a lot. Mm. And then you, you can... Hmm. And, and then, I mean, these politics follow you into Lesotho. Uh, they weave into your storytelling as well, I would think, in your short story work, in your creative work. Uh, but I would also think into your social life as well, uh, because Lesotho also happens to be a place where many South Africans were exiled. Um, just your own experiences. I mean, you spent a considerable amount of time in Lesotho. Oh, yes. I... Do you dream in Sesotho? Well, you... Okay. <laughs> I three people they'll speak in English. Mm, mm. If they are so to those speakers and so to if or whatever other language. So it just depends the characters in my dream, what language they use. Mm. But the dream itself is not in a language, but it is in images. But you are quite correct when you say in other words, if we are just speaking figuratively. Sure, sure. Do I speak? Dream in Sesotho, figuratively. I think so, because I think that um, Sesotho, even Sesotho literature and so on, were my biggest influence mm. in my storytelling when I started writing. But Sesotho is not a language that we encountered for the first time when we went to exile in Sesotho. Even in the Eastern Cape, where, I, you know, as I said, would go to be with my grandmother and mm. grandfather. It was at the borders there, the border of Lesotho and, uh, and, and, and the Eastern Cape. My grandfather was a chief there. Most of his subjects were Sesotho speaking. So much that a lot of my cousins, whose names are Tosa and they are Amashubi and so on, 
But you find that at home, their first language will be Sesotho. One of them, Dennis Nganga, actually became one of the important writers of Sesotho, mm. Sesotho drama and Sesotho novel. Even though, you know, we were Nguni people, but we were Nguni who, who then were assimilated into the Sesotho culture. So going to Lesotho then was more like going home, really. Um, even though it was exiled, my father had to leave his law practice. My mother had to leave his job as a nurse. And we went to settle in Lesotho after he had escaped from from prison mm. in state trade. Yeah, yeah. Prof, I, w- I want us to just pause here for a second because so, and I want us to just take this quick break. And when we come back, uh, we talk about uh, all of the, you know, uh, I guess, uh, heady days out in Lesotho, how that influenced uh, uh, your own creative pursuits. Uh, and also, I want us to also talk about, I guess, uh, the creative inspiration you drew from your period in the United States as well. And just some of your reflections also on South Africa. I mean, uh, you came back and spent some time here as well, uh, which uh, I guess uh, for you, you know, was mixed in a way and how much inspiration you continue to draw in your creative pursuits from from your home country as well. And uh, we'll come back to that after this brief break. Yes, indeed. 19 minutes it is before 9 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. And tonight, as our Thought Leader, we have the honor of uh, hosting uh, Professor Zeik Mda. Uh, we speak to him about, uh, yeah, not just his creative work, but I guess the many environments that have shaped his creative pursuits. And uh, Professor Mda, I guess we were still talking about, uh, you know, you were saying in many ways uh, Lesotho shapes your own uh, creative pursuits, uh, your reading of, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Basotho literature in many ways has uh, shaped and, and formed you. Uh, talk to us about that moment, I guess, in your own creative pursuits. I understand you were writing a lot of short stories at the time, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, fine art as well. Uh, but also, I guess you are having a, a very big time, according to your book. Uh, sometimes there's a void, uh, having a very big time in the nightlife of Maseru as well. <laughs> Well, you see, mm. Mm. a story titled and it was published in a magazine called Wamba. During those days, there was a magazine called Wamba, mm. which would be found, I think it was published by the Department of Country Education. Why? Why? Because you'd find it in all the schools, throughout so all the primary schools. Mm. So my story was published there. And then I went. Very, very first story that was published was in Isikosa language. Mm. And so on. And then I got to Lesotho. Then I was reading other Lesotho writers, more Thomas Mofolo and so on. And these novels had a very big impact on me. Even when I started writing in English, you will find that my English was influenced by Sesotho literature. My love affair, for instance, with the landscape, the environment, the setting, that was a Sesotho literature influence. Because you find that those authors in Sesotho, you know, they really go to town when they describe the landscape, mm. the land, you know. 
uh, they dwell on it and using some of the most beautiful language. So my landscapes then in my novel really come from Sesotho literature. Did that also in- influence what uh, what you did, I guess, in, in so far as fine art is concerned? I mean, that the foregrounding, the visual also in the textual writing. Um... Yes, you see, we, we call it now. No, mm. no, no. In fact, the two started at the same time. But visual art was predominant because it did not need any literacy on my part. Whilst I was learning the skills of language and how to be poetic in, in, in language and so on, Visual art was a constant because all it needs was for me to be able to use my imagination mm. to capture, you know, the, the new world yeah. that I could see or that came from my imagination. Mm. So visual art continued to the extent that when I completed primary school and high school in Lesotho, and then I went to university in Europe, my first degree was in fine arts, mm. uh, focusing on painting. So, and yeah. even after mm. that, many years after that, long before I was recognized as a writer, I was painting, I was holding exhibitions in Europe. Mm. My works were being collected by various collectors, but mostly in Europe, because you know, that's where I did my first degree. And that's where I was doing most of my artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was only later when, you know, the scribbling that I was doing, because writing, I've always been doing it, mm. um, where, you know, my plays began to be recognized and won some awards in South Africa. And then I gained more fame as a playwright and then later on I became a novelist and so on and then most people got to know me more mm. in those fields yeah. rather, than, rather than in painting. Prof, I'm also quite interested, I mean when, and I like the point you make that you know you went to university um, and you first did your fine art you also got your PhD at UCT in 1989 uh, yeah. and I'm quite interested, I mean 1989 is uh, probably a moment of flux, a moment of a lot of moment of change. 1989, 1990, 1991. Yeah. You come, you come back into South Africa, both in the teaching space, I guess you know pedagogically, but also you know as a massive cultural figure. What is the kind of South Africa you come to, um, having had all of these experiences in Lesotho and abroad, and just as you think about it now in hindsight, just your reflections on that South Africa as a cultural space, but also the South African University classroom as a pedagogic space? Your experience with a South African classroom. Mm. And then throughout my life, then I was either in the Soto until then I finished high school, and then I was in Europe where I was doing my first degree and so on. And then I went to America to do two master's degrees there. I'm coming back then... Uh, to South Africa, as you say, uh, came back. Mm. So how was I? How was I able to come back? I was helped a lot by the Lesotho government because I became a Lesotho 
citizen, our natural line, mm. as a, a, a citizen of the Soto. And then my going back then, I was going back as a Soto person. The government of Soto having negotiated with the Boers, but I could return, you know, they have nothing on me, which was true, of course, because even my exile, we must remember that it was not really my exile. It was my father's exile. Mm. I was merely joining him in exile because he was my father. I had not provoked anyone in mm. South Africa. He's the one who had provoked the, the, the poor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that? Mm. So then, coming back as a Lesotho citizen to South Africa, to UCT, and... Prof, 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 they didn't, prof. Bo- they, they didn't bother me. Sorry, Prof. I, I need to pause you there just for a second. Let's take this brief uh, ad break. It's just nearing on us, and uh, I'll allow you to conclude after this. Okay. Eight minutes it is before 9 p.m. I'm in discussion with Professor Zaksim Duff for our Thought Leader Thursday segment. Prof, uh, you were still, uh, I guess, uh, giving us uh, an, uh, some visual image of the kind of University of Cape Town you arrive at in the late 80s. Yes, yes. In Cape Town, mm. some of which were led by Desmond Tutu on one hand, and once in a while, uh, the white mayor of Cape Town as well, whose name I, I, I forget now. It was a time of those demonstrations that proclaim the people shall govern. Mm. Because during those demonstrations, of course, the, you know, the police would spray us with people die so that they should be able or they would be able to identify those who had participated in those demonstrations. You know, so that's where the people shall govern came from. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it was a time of great excitement because the changes were beginning to happen. And then, of course, it was a period when the Boers were beginning to, to negotiate with, you know, they were going to Dakar to negotiate mm. uh, with the ANC in exile. So those were the changes that one witnessed, returning just a few years before the political prisoners were were released, and before the rest of of the exiled people um, uh, came back. And and, and then so I mean beyond that, then, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, I was, I was just about to ask. I think, you know, even in the, then in the post-apartheid period, I mean, you, you did stay in the country for some time. Just your reflections. Uh, and I ask this in the context of some of the things we see in the contemporary moment. I mean, you know, the, the very deep sense of Afrophobia that we see. And you say you came in actually as a, as a Musoto rather than, you know, a South African due to all manner of reasons. And then, of course, also, I guess, uh, the turning point that Marikana is. Um, did you start to see the seeds of some of these big disappointments, or what I might call national disappointments, uh, early on in your return? Not early on, because when I came back, these were days of euphoria. Mm. Mm. And that is why then, when I came back during that period, I wrote a play titled The Dying Scream of the Moon, where a woman from exile who was a gorilla out there, 
comes back, you know, home and finds that his land was taken over, you know, <laughs> during those forced removal. Mm. And she, she, she has this single person demonstration claiming back the land. So a play like that, of course, well, it was like now you are pouring cold water on the people's euphoria mm. when you start telling them that, oh, yeah, no, we are happy about what is happening, but it's not the core of what we were fighting for. We were not only fighting for being allowed to be allowed to get into to drink in hotels with, with white people and so on. The question of the land is key for some of us. So much that that play was never performed, even though other plays of mine were performed at the market theater and everywhere else. That play, producers and directors were afraid mm. to touch it. Sure. It was only performed for the very first time six years ago when John, John Carney uh, directed it at the market theater, mm. the dying stream mm. of the moon. Prof. Just, just on that score, I mean, I, I want us just to briefly talk about your latest, you know, uh, work of art, The Man in a Green Blanket. Um, yes. Reflecting on the life, uh, just as we wrap up, of Mkuneni um, Noki. Uh, right. Because I do think there are common themes to that play that you talk about, which was only to come to uh, the stages much, much later than when you had envisaged. As you were working on that piece, I mean... Um, Certainly, a lot would have come to your mind. Um, just maybe take us with you into that creative process, and um, I guess what you made of what came out of that. The Maricana thing was um, Maricana Massacre. Mm. Was was it twenty twelve? Twenty twelve. Yes, twenty twelve. Yeah. Yes, twenty twelve. Which means that then my series of painting titled "The Man in a Green Blanket" only started after that uh, because. They were centered around this char- character that was influenced by Mkwenenenoki, or Mambush, as, as they call him. What fascinated me about Mambush was the fact that he was never one of the formal leader of Amku, or, 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 you know, he was not a, a Matunj was there or any mm. one of those big shots. Yeah. He was an ordinary worker who emerged among the other workers and took over leadership at the spur of the moment when things were happening during the action mm. itself. Mm. You see, so he's a leader who grew from the roots at that time of need when his chants were essential at the time, when his voice to rally the people with song and chants and so on was essential at the time. Mm. You see? In other words, he's an accidental hero, but who became much more symbolic in importance than all the other heroes mm. in the big shows who were in their offices or elsewhere planning the strike or 
you know, doing things mm. like that. Hmm. That is how then he became a very important figure. And then I started painting him. Yeah. At first, painting him, I saw in mm. newspapers and, and, and so on. But then later, he emerges in my paintings, as you may see, a lot of the paintings, I'm, I'm looking at some of them now, yeah. as I'm talking to you, mm. where he has transcended that, mm. you know, they, they killed him there. Yeah. And in, in my work, he appears in different situations mm. as a different character, but still with his green blanket. Prof. Prof, because uh, I think if we can continue, uh, so, so I want us maybe to pause here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, want, I want us to pause there. We have unfortunately run out of time. Um, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you uh, for sharing so generously of your time. Um, so that we, we mustn't give away too much because we also want people to go uh, and uh, read the material, go and you know, read the plays and go and, you know, uh, see some of the artwork. Uh, they will come to the exhibition on the 30th. On the 30th. Of, of, of this month. Okay. Where's the exhibition happening? The exhibition of, of, of my painting on the it, it opens on the 30th the, the, this month here in Rosebank. Thank you very much. Diabula la kuluchana. Diabula. Goes. That there was Professor Zaik Sumda. Uh, yeah. Yo, 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 yo could have gone into so much more but we are going to have to leave it here folks i've already sort of started to eat into uh, a month's time and